This is Africa Digest. It's a brand new week. Happy Monday. I do hope that you've enjoyed it so far. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa. Always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're on the channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with me, making sure that you stay abreast of all things Africa. I do have Jualani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Congo's Jean-Pierre Bemba calls on the DRC's people to continue supporting the Lamuka Coalition. Human rights organizations hailed a landmark international agreement banning violence and harassment in the workplace. And Mauritania's ruling party candidate Mohamed Old uh, Gazouini has been declared as the winner of the country's presidential elections. We're also going to be having your economics and uh, sporting news a little bit later on in the show. But right now, let me say hello to you, Jualani. Hi, Samara. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I am so sick. Don't make me sick. I'm so sick. I'm pretty sure that everybody in the studio, considering the lack of ventilation in here, <laughs> is going to be extremely sick. No, don't this. do that to me. I just <laughs> recovered from the flu. <laughs> but it is a new week. Did you have a good weekend? It was all right. I was still sick, nursing the flu. It was all right. Oh, also, it's possible that you made me sick. No, not at all. It's highly possible. In the f- last five minutes. <laughs> highly possible. No, I mean, last week, maybe. I wasn't here. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, it's 17.01 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk for your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The Attorney General of Amhara State in northern Ethiopia has died after a coup bid at the weekend. The state media has reported that Migbaru Kebede succumbed to his gunshot wounds, which he sustained during Saturday's attack during a failed regional coup attempt. The region's president, Ambachu Mekonen, and his advisor were also shot dead, which, which the government has described as an attempted coup. South Africa's public protector Busuem Kwebane says she's shocked to learn through the media that both the opposition DA and some of the campaign managers of President Cyril Ramaphosa claim that she was never asked to investigate allegations of money laundering into a donation by Bosasa. She says she met with DA leader Musimai Mani on two occasions who emphasized that this must be investigated. Abongile Dumako reports. Public Protector Busisi Wemkwebane says she is shocked to learn through the media that both the DA and some CR17 campaign managers claim that she was never asked to investigate allegations of money laundering into the donation by Busasa. She says she met with the DA leader Musi Maimane on two occasions who emphasized that this must be investigated. The health ministry in the DRC says more than 1,500 people have died in a nearly 10-month-old outbreak of Ebola. Earlier this month, the virus claimed two lives in neighboring Uganda among a family who had traveled to the DRC. Over 140,000 people have been vaccinated in the affected eastern DRC provinces of Ituri and North Kivu, the epicenter of the outbreak. Ebola spreads among humans through close contact with blood, body fluids, secretions or organs of an infected person or object contaminated by such fluids.
The United Nations Human Rights Chief Michel Bachelet says 55,000 former Islamic State fighters detained in Syria and Iraq must be tried or released. Speaking at a meeting of the UN Human Rights Council, Bachelet also said countries of origin of foreign fighters with families should take responsibility for them. It must be clear that all individuals who are suspected of crimes, whatever their country of origin and whatever the nature of the crime, should face investigation and prosecution with due process guarantees. Accountability with fair trials protects societies from future radicalization and violence. Betrayals of justice following flawed trials, which may include unlawful and inhumane detention and capital punishment, can only serve the narrative of grievance and revenge. And finally, Belgian police have arrested a man they suspect of planning a terrorism attack against the U.S. Embassy in Brussels. The man, identified only by his initials MG, was arrested on Saturday and has subsequently been charged with terrorism. The man has denied the accusations. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Congo's Jean-Pierre Bemba has called on the Democratic Republic of Congo's people to continue supporting the Lamuka coalition by demanding the poll's truth. Bemba made the call at a rally in Kinshasa on Sunday as he came back from Belgium almost a year after the country's electoral commission kicked him out of last December's presidential election due to condemnation by the ICC for bribing witnesses. Jean-Noel Bamweze has the story from Kinshasa. The leader of the movement of liberation of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, who's also a former senator and a former deputy president of this country, was welcomed by a big crowd at the Njiri International Airport as he returned from Brussels on Sunday. Speaking to his supporters and other Congolese at a meeting few hours after his arrival, Jean-Pierre Bemba emphasized the serious problems facing this country, including corruption, tribalism, unemployment and injustice. He then called on Congolese to continue supporting the opposition coalition well known as Lamuka by demanding the polls the truth as this coalition never accepted the current president Felix Tshisekedi was the winner of last December election. Jean-Pierre Bemba. Regarding the polls the truth, we decided to fight for this immediately after election says Lamuka coalition fights for the people's interest. We must demonstrate peacefully for democracy according to the constitution. Jean-Pierre Bemba was one of the candidates to compete for last December presidential election, but his name was not on the list. The Independent National Electoral Commission released him. He was kicked off after the International Criminal Court found him guilty of bribing witnesses. He stayed shortly here in Kinshasa in August and went to Brussels in Belgium where he was staying until he came back here on Sunday, he stated that he has returned home in order to be part of the Democratic Republic of Congo's Republican opposition. And indeed, people on the ruling coalition side have welcomed Bemba's returning home as any Congolese who's ready to work for the country. This youth committee member of the ruling party, the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, UDP, said they are all happy. Bevon Mukunai. The secretary said, Jean-Pierre Bemba, you're a Congolese, you have to come here. This is your country. There is no one who can refuse your presence in this country. Re- start with everything that you were doing before. 
there is no problem. That's why uh, we are very happy to receive again Jean-Pierre Bemba in uh, this country. We are very happy as a UDP member because we know some strategy that they can try to rule. We know sometimes our president was really blocked, was not working very well. Even though the former president is afraid of Jean-Pierre Bemba, that's why he was refusing to receive Jean-Pierre Bemba in his country. And he's very happy. He said yes to come here so that they have to rule very well this country. We are very happy with this presence here. Meanwhile, so many Congolese on the ground are no more ready to support political actors as they believe the DRC politicians fight for positions just for their own interest and not for people's interests. I met one of those disappointed Congolese who's a well-educated person and ready to work but can't get a job. And the only thing he's expecting is peace. John John Kayembe expressed the big emotion and told the Channel Africa he's afraid Jean-Pierre Bemba has come to make trouble here. I'm not happy about the politics for DRC. I'm not happy. It's a fucking politics for the Congolese. The Jean-Pierre Mbemba, what he coming to do again? He's supposed to stay here to leave his friend, his president now. What he coming to do here? To make trouble again? I need quiet here in the DRC. He came here before. He went. He didn't ask the people I'm going. He just ran away like that. Now him, he want to coming again today. What he came to do here in the DRC? To make trouble again? I need the quiet. I don't want the fucking people politic. I need the quiet in my country because the people is angry, need the food, I need the proper organization to doing. I need the food. I don't have food. I don't have a job. I don't know what can I say about uh, this country. I'm not happy. I'm not happy. He just bring other complications. If he came again, I think uh, Fayulu to You're be right. together and Fayulu to make it trouble. He's supposed to leave the people quiet. You must waiting next time. If you get a chance to win, you can win too. I need always Congolese be quiet. And as far as trouble is concerned, indeed, Jean-Pierre Bemba's supporters clashed with police while taking Bemba to the rally scene and police used the tear gas to control the situation. Meanwhile, the Lamuka coalition has announced a demonstration next Sunday to demand the police truth and for constitutional court to rehabilitate Lamuka's MPs who have been invalidated. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. And we apologize for the very spirited language in that clip over there. Uh, seemingly emotions are extremely high in the Democratic Republic of Congo as things are not going according to plan for some people. Human rights organizations have hailed a landmark international agreement banning violence and harassment in the workplace, which was adopted by the International Labour Organization, the ILO, in Geneva, Switzerland. This happened last week. The treaty was adopted after a vote by tripartite delegates from the 187th member states following two intense weeks of discussions. ILO member governments, worker representatives and employers' organizations voted overwhelmingly to adopt the treaty and an accompanying uh, non-binding recommendation that provides guidance on the convention's obligations. Channel Africa earlier spoke to South African labor lawyer Michael Bagram about the significance of the new treaty. Well, I think it's very significant for us in South Africa. We are signatories to the International Labour Organization, the ILO, and we do in fact try our utmost to ensure that we follow all the treaties as signed by the ILO. 
and all its member nations. And in fact, South Africa lended its voice to support of this uh, particular treaty against violence and harassment at the workplace. And I'll tell you why it's so important for us mm. is that we have an enormous amount of unemployment um, in South Africa. Now, a lot of staff, and I, I deal with it every day as a labor lawyer, a lot of staff don't actually ever raise their voices or complain if they're being harassed, bullied, uh, or even violently treated at work. Uh, to a large degree, people keep quiet. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to upset anyone, and they don't do anything about it. Now, we do have laws in South Africa. We've got some of the best labor laws in the world. Um, in, in line with our constitution, um, we have uh, certain laws that have come up uh, to support the constitution, such as the Labor Relations Act, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, Employment Equity. So we have 11 pieces of labor legislation that all outlaw violence and harassment at the workplace. Unfortunately, it hasn't been recognized as a real problem. And once we've had this now recognized by the International Labor Organization, we as a country will probably start taking more action against employers, for instance, mm. who allow this harassment and violence to take place. But it's not only uh, fellow staff members or management, but even if, for instance, a customer violates you in some way or other, your employer is now obliged to come forward and to stop that harassment, to stop all the violence at the workplace. And we are probably expecting now, in line with the ILO Convention and the new treaty, we're probably going to be expecting tightening up of our laws, probably an amendment to the Labor Relations Act, making it so much more strong. And we'll see the new Minister of Employment and Labor come forward to put in much harsher regulations mm. to ensure this doesn't happen. Now, I think everyone would agree, every single listener would agree, and all our citizens in this country, that we cannot tolerate any form of harassment or violence. And that, and that is coupled with bullying. And we do find it, unfortunately, and especially in large companies where you have people in factories, uh, people in blue-collar work, people are scared. And if they do get bullied or violently treated, um, we find that many of those people feel that there's no outlet. Absolutely. The informal work sector, is it covered? Well, it's always covered. Um, the problem is we've got legislation. That legislation is, first of all, not well known, and many people in the informal sector don't have access to any form of protection. So you find many of the companies or um, employers in the informal sector um, aren't unionized. That's the first thing, and I, I'm a great supporter of unionization at the workplace because it is it acts as a, both a spear and a shield for the staff who can't afford lawyers, they can't afford to go to courts, and we do need the union activity in this field. But very small businesses, the informal sector, don't normally get unionized because, like we all know, unions are businesses as well, and they rather organize with a lot of people. So, yes, the call to people in the informal sector is you do have a right. That right is well protected. You don't need to get lawyers. You don't have to go and get advisors. You can go both to the Department of Labor and lodge the complaint or to the CCMA and lodge a complaint or to the equality courts uh, to lodge your complaints, and they will help you. I know in particular at the CCMA, the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, and Arbitration, they will help you. They will assist you in filling in your forms. It's called an application LRA 711, but you don't even know how to do it. You don't need to know. They will fill it in for you and do it. On many occasions, inspectors from the Department of Labor will call on your employer 
to come and investigate without actually dropping you into any trouble. The LGBTI community, the, the treaty excludes reference to the vulnerability of this group, which activists had sought. Do you think that this new treaty will eventually pave the way for the protection of the LGBTI plus community in the workplace? Oh, absolutely. Look, let's not kid ourselves. That is happening all the time. But it's very difficult to use our laws as they currently stand because people are feeling that they don't have access to our law. People are feeling they don't have access to advice. And I think with this new treaty, it's making it so much more powerful that you don't really need to go through the legal route. You can lodge your complaint immediately with the Department of Labor, I believe, that the Department of Labor is going to be much more vigilant now uh, after this new treaty, and it's been brought to their attention in, in a whole myriad of ways. Um, I, I believe that all communities, all exposed communities, are going to be able to speak up and are going to be able to protect themselves into the future. And that's Michael, Michael Begram, a South African labor lawyer, talking to Asanda Beda. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Now moving on to Morocco, a place where millions of people travel for holidays each year from around the world. It has historically been one of the most stable places in the Arab world. But a new survey carried out for the BBC News Arabic by the Arab Barometer Research Network indicates a surge in calls for rapid political change. The BBC's Rida al-Mawi has been finding out why Moroccans, particularly young Moroccans, are calling for a change in government. From the rooftop of an old building in Casablanca, Saleh is looking at the sea on the horizon. He's in his 20s now. He's one of many Moroccans who followed their dream of crossing the Mediterranean to the other side, to Europe. People go there for certain things that we don't have here, like freedom. After years in which desire amongst Moroccans to emigrate had declined, it's on the rise once more. The desire for sudden political change in Morocco is greater than in any other part of the region, according to the survey for BBC News Arabic. There are many things, like respect. There is no care here in Morocco for the population. It's the lack of care, I can say, that makes people migrate. The survey results indicate 70% of adults under 30 say they are considering leaving the country. Saleh came back from Europe last year when his bid for citizenship in Germany was denied. He believes Morocco has a long way to go to match opportunities in Europe. Transport, health, education. These needs to be fixed. We can't wait years or more. This needs to be fixed now, straight away. Abdallah Al-Barnouni, a retired accountant, is preparing tea for his family. Today's generation, today's kids want to get there quickly. They want everything quickly. The car, the house, the job. They want to quickly reach a high standard of living. Looking on, his daughter Khadija, a student, agrees. There is a difference between the older generation and ours. Like we are more free 
to talk. You can study anything you want. There are more subjects in our time than there were before. Morocco is one of the region's monarchies, and royalty has proved more resilient to the waves of protests that have affected the region. I am in a street where, in 2011, Moroccans were calling for reforms inspired by the Arab uprisings across the region. But the wars that broke out after the Arab Spring discouraged many Moroccans from asking for radical change. Today, there is a very different mood in the country, with almost half the population saying they want immediate change now. Most of the people we spoke to would not go as far as to criticize the monarchy, rather the country's government and other institutions. But the once unthinkable is now being talked about by some. Controlling the economy by not separating it from politics can lead to a catastrophe, including rejection of the monarchy itself. Abdelatif Fadwash is a journalist and political activist who runs an opposition newspaper in Casablanca. He says there is frustration that promised political changes were never implemented. At any moment, Morocco can witness what happened in Algeria and Sudan and before it in Syria or Egypt or Libya or Tunisia. Morocco feels like two countries, the stable place of Abdullah, which was spared the domino effect of the Arab uprisings, and that of the growing population under 30, filled with aspirations but also political unhappiness. Bringing them together is the challenge ahead for Morocco's rulers. And that report was by the BBC's Rida al-Mawi. Scientists from around the world are meeting in Germany today to uh, meeting in Germany today to discuss how to make money from carbon dioxide. They want to transform some of the CO2 that's overheating the planet into products to benefit humanity instead. They're not claiming the technology will solve climate change, but they insist it will help. CO2 is already being used to help create fuels, poly- polymers, fertilizers, proteins, foams and building blocks. The BBC's Roger Rabin visited three firms across England and sent this report. Making a profit out of using CO2 is the holy grail of climate change technology. Slowly, slowly, it's starting to happen. Here's example number one. Turning CO2 into building blocks. Yes, building blocks. In Leeds, there's a firm making blocks with CO2. This sounds unlikely, but they mix the CO2 with ash from the chimney of a waste incinerator. To make the blocks involves this awesome bit of chemistry. I'm standing with a table, a bottle, a canister of CO2 and a block, a building block. Inside my bottle, there is some incinerator ash mixed with water. I'm now going to fill the bottle up with carbon dioxide. going to give it a shake and already I can feel it's getting hot I don't know if you can hear but wow the bottle is just collapsing on itself it's really hot at the base and what's happening is that all the carbon dioxide is being absorbed by the ash and turning it into a solid where it is no harm to anyone This clever chemistry is now operating on an industrial scale. Steve Gregg from Carbon 8 Aggregates says they're already exporting the technology. 
There's a lot of technologies that are trying to do things differently with carbon dioxide. Here, we're taking carbon dioxide, we're treating a waste and making a limestone. And there are other companies that are doing all manner of different things with carbon dioxide. So if we can treat it as a resource rather than a waste, there's huge opportunities for carbon dioxide use. Solution number two. Turning CO2 from a biodigester into bubbles for fizzy drinks. The horses at Newmarket races generate tons of manure combined with straw from their stables. The ripe-smelling wastes are piled up outdoors at this biodigester plant in Suffolk. The great tanks are full of bugs that feed on the straw and horse muck mixture. These bugs produce two gases. One, methane, is taken to feed the gas grid that heats people's homes. The other gas is CO2, normally released into the atmosphere, but here separated, captured in tanks and sold. Charlie Fillingham from Strutton Parker Farms has worked hard to make his CO2 food standard. Well, having produced the raw biogas, what we really needed to do was to manufacture the CO2 to market standards. That meant food and drink standard. So what we've installed here are a very high quality membranes and pumping technology to be able to purify and clean up the CO2 to food and drink standard. If you drop in for a lager or a lemonade, at a pub in the east of England, it's likely that the bubbles in your glass could have originated in horse dung. <laughs> Although you really can't tell. Solution number three. Turning CO2 into a quality fertiliser. The first ingredient is fibrous waste left after cow dung and maize have been fed into a biogas digester. This stuff is low in nutrients, little use to put on crops. So the firm adds a liquid waste from the fertiliser industry, along with other nutrients and, crucially, CO2. At the end of the process, you get little pellets of top-class fertiliser. Peter Hammond, the inventor, is delighted. What's most satisfying for us is to take a material like carbon dioxide, which is fundamentally useless as far as most people are concerned and positively harmful, and then transform that into something that is beneficial. Of course, these three schemes won't even dent that great blanket of CO2 in the atmosphere. Wow. But they do offer a tantalising taste of what clever science can do. And that report was by the BBC's Roger Harabin. More big companies and restaurants are heeding the call to stop using plastic straws in an effort to address the plastic pollution crisis currently plaguing oceans. Each and every day around the world, more than 500 million drinking straws are used and discarded. While some are recycled, most are dumped in landfills and they find their way into the ocean, where plastic pollution is taking its toll on wildlife. KFC South Africa last week announced it will pla- it plans to move plastic straws, uh, to remove plastic straws in over 900 uh, restaurants across the country, helping to eliminate 60 million plastic straws a year. The move forms part of a new global sustainability commitment that will uh, plastic that all bla- plastic-based packaging items will be recoverable or reusable by 2025. More from Tabisa Mukwena, KFC Africa's Public Affairs Director. So the final straw is really a beginning of a journey for us at KFC. It marks our journey in moving or what we call flipping from plastic straws to paper straws. What it will do for us as a business but also for the communities and the environment is that we remove 60 million plastic straws from South Africa every single year by making this change. 
we call it the beginning of a journey because our intent is by 2025, any plastic that we use in our restaurants will be recoverable or recyclable. So it's the beginning of something so much bigger. But, you know, as Professor Amanda said tonight, it's all about beginning. It's all about the small actions. And those are the things that shape the future. And for me personally, this journey has been about really connecting this to something that matters to me. Um, plastic and feel, you know, when you look at your own individual plastic use or your straw use, it's such a small thing in your world. But actually when you start to connect it to how it impacts someone else and something that matters to you, it makes you stop and think, is it really that important? Um, and the fact that we actually came from paper straws. Plastic was an innovation on paper and an innovation that did enable us to do certain things but actually is now not impacting us in the way that it should be. So it allows us to actually go, we're going to flip back to something far more sustainable because one of our challenges as a nation and I think as a people is sustainability. Um, how do we sustain our communities? How do we sustain our nation? How do we sustain our continent holistically from an African continent perspective? Why straws? Why do away with plastic straws? So why straws? Um, there's a couple of reasons. So because they're so small, how people dispose of straws is actually one of the biggest environmental impacts um, because they, most of them end up in our oceans. What happens with that is the animals that are impacted, the entire ecosystem of the oceans impacted, which then impacts us as people, but also the water supply is impacted, um, the fish and, and kind of whatever comes out of the sea is now reducing. And so the long-term effect, you may not feel it today, but as it builds up, we're starting to see the climate change, as Prof spoke of, where that lands up in a landfill and it's, you know, it takes over 200 years for a plastic straw to dissolve when you dispose of it in a landmine. Now, 200 years, if we start adding that up, that's four generations on average, right? Um, and so when you start looking at a normal person like myself, because like I said to you, for me, I had to connect it to things that mattered to me. The idea that the straw, this final straw that we are now preserving as an artifact at the Regions Center and at the Regions Museum, children will be able to come and see something they cannot imagine. There was once a plastic straw and now they're going to be able to come to a museum and look at it and go, oh my gosh, this is so weird. Um, and so that's what tonight is about, is about saying let's take a stand and take a, a position in the right direction as a brand, but also encourage people and challenge people to join us on it to go, yeah, sometimes it's slightly inconveniencing, but actually we adapt to change. Let's adapt to change to ensure that we leave people with the right things on the other end of it. Why was it so important for a brand such as yourself to be environmentally friendly? You know, for us, it's very simple. We do business in communities and we do business within the environment, right? And so when the environment and the communities we do business in don't thrive, our business can't thrive. And so for us, what's important is as we care for people and care for communities, we must care for the environment too, because it enables, it kind of is a chicken and an egg, and excuse the pun, type situation of which comes first. And so for us as a brand, both locally and globally, we're incredibly invested in what we call fast good. Um, moving ourselves from a brand that's just about fast food into actually doing good as we do fast food. And then that's where it's really been birthed from, is we see the benefits of being what we often call, you know, a true citizen and a true African citizen because we've been here almost 50 years. We've been part of the fiber of South Africans for so long, but we also know that we can contribute meaningfully in driving the correct change and the direction of change. All right.
time for us uh, to see what's happening in the news bulletin. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that that was Tabisa Mkwanazi, KFC Africa's Public Affairs Director, speaking to Ntlantla Mashangu. Right now it's time for your news headlines with Jualani Tulo. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the Attorney General of Amhara State in northern Ethiopia has died after a coup bird at the weekend. South Africa's public protector, Busum Kwebane, says she's shocked to learn through the media that both the opposition DA and some of, com- of the campaign managers of President Cyril Ramaphosa claim that she was never asked to investigate allegations of money laundering into a donation by Bosasa. And finally, the Health Ministry in the DRC says more than 1,500 people have died in a nearly 10-month-old outbreak of Ebola. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. The 2019 Sunland Benchmark Survey, South Africa's leading annual survey of the retirement industry, has revealed that for many employers, group risk fees rose by up... uh, rose by upwards of 50% over the past few years as a result of a deterioration in claims uh, experienced across the country. A combination of factors from market-wide pricing practices, worsening national health and taxation charges, has led to the increase in costs which may ultimately result in certain group risk products like disability cover becoming unaffordable. More from Michelle Jennings, Chief Executive Officer of Sunlam Group Risk, a South African financial services group. So group risk is insurance that's offered to employers or groups of individuals that are coordinated through an employer or sometimes it's something like a, a fund, an insu- a fund, yes. Now take us through the key highlights from the 2019 Sunlam Benchmark research. Um, there were a number of observations that came out of the research. That, mm-hmm. um, so as a matter of interest, it's the 39th year that we've been doing this research. So we do this in order to identify uh, trends and underlying issues in the EV market. Mm-hmm. There were about 10 themes that we identified. Um, but if I can maybe just highlight just a couple of those, I would say probably the... Uh, one of the main themes was around governance and regulation, and in the research we focused on the default regulations. Mm. That was because the research was done in around about February of this year, um, and the default regulations were effective from the beginning of March. So the, the focus was around the readiness um, of funds for these default regulations, and um, really asking the question whether funds were going to be just compliant, like a tick box exercise, or whether they were genuinely focused on member outcomes in terms of doing the right things. Um, I, I think another um, highlight from the research was around the recognition that individualization is going to be critical in this group space in order to ensure um, you know, improved financial outcomes for members. And what we mean by that is that by focusing on individuals and targeting communication with individuals specifically and creating awareness with individuals, um, they can drive right, the right behaviors. And to, to some extent, this was also driven by the, the default regulations in terms of the counseling, um, infant counseling and infant preservation. And we actually saw some very promising results through the early adoption of some funds of these default regulations. Mm. The other thing I would like to highlight is the um, cyber risk 
a number of the respondents indicated that they one of their biggest concerns was around cyber risk. And, and when the one of the presentations that was actually done by Saborko, our head of digital, she actually highlighted that financial the financial services sector is one of the most uh, cyber attacked in the world. So this awareness is critically important that funds start to recognize that it's important to make sure that their uh, providers are cyber resilient. And then the other factor that I want to highlight um, is the area that I've focused on in particular, which is that the consultants and employers have seen rapidly increasing group risk insurance premiums mm. over the last couple of years. Mm. Now here we've had a, a number of the consultants gave feedback that they've experienced rate increases not only from some group risk, but from all of the insurers. Um, and in many instances, the employers are actually accepting rate increases that are in excess of 50%. So it's very steep increases that we're seeing, and it's driven by the increasing claims experience that we're seeing across the board. Mm. So now, how can the group risk industry work together to improve affordability? So it's, when we say the group risk industry here, we're talking about um, all the participants. So we're talking about employers, employees, mm-hmm. insurers, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even the consultants, and I suppose especially the consultants, because the intention is to keep uh, keep group risk business affordable for members. And the way things are going at the moment, it's meaning it's resulting in um, group risk premiums becoming unaffordable, or it's eating into retirement savings, and that's definitely something that we want to avoid. So, um, as group risk providers, here I'm talking about all the insurers, we're not talking about collusion, we're talking about us all applying the same principles of keeping this um, industry sustainable. You know, in the past I think there was a little bit of maverick behavior, if I may say so, where some of the insurers perhaps were very aggressive in their pricing in order to grow their market share. Mm. Um, And that has really got us to a point where those rates were unsustainable. Um, And now these big increases that we're seeing are actually a market correction. So insurers have definitely got a responsibility to make sure that they are pricing sustainably at the get-go. Um, and that we're not going to see big rate increases coming thereafter. Mm. But also insurers need to be selective about the risks that they're bringing on board. Um, so we've also seen a, a tendency for um, the consultants and the employers to push for very high free cover limits. Um, and at the same time, the rates have been decreasing. So we're bringing very risky business onto the books, which means obviously that there's going to be increased claims, but the insurance premiums are not adequate to support those claims. Oh. Um, and that's actually the insurer's responsibility to make sure that we don't do that. Mm. And and finally, why are risk products vital for financial inclusion and resilience? So typically, group insurance products are a lot cheaper um, than the retail products. And they're accessible and affordable because they're provided through the employer and there's a certain amount of cross-subsidization um, between the different members in a group scheme to keep it affordable for the masses. Um, it also means that things like mines, up where, where it's very difficult to get access to insurers, um, these sorts of products are provided through the employers, making it extremely accessible for the members. And that uh, is Michelle Jennings, Chief Executive Officer of Sunlam Group Risk, on the line talking to Lewukhang Mbange. This week marks the commemoration of the annual South African National Council of Alcohol and Drug Dependence Drug Awareness Week. Substance use disorder remains a serious issue in countries across the world. Approximately 275 million people aged 15 to, 30, uh, to 64 
uh, have used drugs at least once during the 2016 uh, during excuse me uh, approximately 275 million people aged 15 to 64 have used drugs at least once during 2016 according to the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime more from Nicole Breen project leader for international information and awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health Look, commemorative occasions like this are an opportunity to look back at the past, consider the present, and envisage the future we want for people suffering from substance abuse disorder and related conditions. Is there any link, Nicole, between substance use and mental illness? Yes, there is a link. So, substance abuse can worsen the symptoms of a mental illness if a person has one, or can lead to a first episode of a mental illness that can last a lifetime. And substances can also cause drug-reduced psychosis and can reduce the effectiveness of treatments. And why is addiction to substances regarded as a mental health condition? Well, substance abuse disorder is considered under the DSM-5 to be a mental health condition. This is largely because a mood and mind-altering substance changes the chemicals in the brain and can cause a person to exhibit certain symptoms associated with mental illness. Are there any symptoms that one exhibits when they're dealing with a substance use disorder? You would note things like changes in mood, possibly person having difficulties at work, at home, in relationships, certain physical side effects, you know, shaking or sweating, you know, that could be signs of withdrawal. You could notice the person's eating habits changing. There are a lot of different symptoms you could notice. In terms of the challenges that as an organization you face in tackling this problem, what are they? Well, I would say there's definitely certain push factors. So things like poverty, inequality, unemployment, people using substances to mitigate the effects of a mental illness in the short term, you know, things like peer pressure, you know, there's definitely a lot of push factors, particularly among young members of the community. What, in your view, are the key elements to ensuring that, as a country, we root out substance use disorder? Mm, Well, first of all, I would say that education is key. You know, it's only through gaining an understanding of the particular issues that a person can begin to see the need to stay away from drugs. And it's only in um, understanding the effects of drugs that a person can begin to see, like I was saying, why they should stay away and what proactive steps they can take. Prevention and early intervention is key, and this is linked to education in the sense that if a person knows and understands what the possible consequences could be, then they would make every effort not to do drugs in the first place or if they are doing them to attempt to stop. Now, this is um, partly the responsibility of, you know, citizens, of members of society who need to go about gaining this all-important education, but it's not fair to place this entirely on the shoulders of the community. Government also has a role to play. So government must set up effective prevention and intervention services, rehabilitation services, and must also seek to provide education to communities. Tell us about some of the services that your organization provides to people dealing with this problem, and how can they reach you? Our organization has what we call an information desk, where people can make contact with us 
and then they can be referred to appropriate services. So we are a non-governmental organization striving to uphold and protect the rights of people with mental illnesses, psychosocial disabilities and intellectual disabilities. We also have information available on our website, safmh.org. You can contact us telephonically on 011-781-1852. I think contacts that are very important for an issue such as this would be SANCA, you know, as it is SANCA Drug Awareness Week. And, um, you know, they're an organization at the forefront of the provision of assistance to people with substance abuse disorders. They can be contacted on 011-892-3475. They have a WhatsApp helpline, 076-535-1701. And can be emailed at sankanational at telcomsa.net. And their website is www.sankanational.info. And that was Nicole Breen, Project Leader for Information and, Te- and Awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It's now time for us to cross on over to Tracy at the Money Desk and find out what's happening in your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwe has discontinued the usage of foreign currencies in the country. The finance minister, Mtuli Ngube, signed the government gazette that enforces the use of the country's new currency, RTGS dollar, alongside the Zimbabwean dollar. The South African rand, Botswana's pula, as well as the U.S. dollar were all accepted for transactions before the new law. Ngube says it became necessary to bring back a monocurrency regime to help normalize the situation. Uh, what was happening in the market is that the market was self-US dollarizing. Uh, it was uncontrollable. The multi-currency regime has become a US dollar regime. They don't, have, they don't earn US dollars. They can't afford to buy things in the shops. They can't pay for medicines and healthcare services where the hospitals and clinics are demanding US dollars. Quite clearly, it became an untenable situation. Ethiopian businesses continue to suffer as power cuts hit the country. A drop in water levels and hydroelectric drams have led to a production deficit. The rationing program is expected to run until July. Electricity exports worth 82 million U.S. dollars a year have also been suspended to neighboring Djibouti and Sudan. Customers and businesses say they're paying a heavy price because of the power cuts. Nurses in Eswatini has given government four weeks to solve the drug shortages crisis in the kingdom or they will call a nationwide strike. Iswatini has been short of medicines and public hospitals for more than a year. The government is reported to be broke and has not paid suppliers. Nurses also want government to prioritize hiring of nurses and for health care to be adequately financed. Last week, psychiatric nurses say they might release patients from their clinics because there were no drugs to subdue them after supplies ran out and they feared for their own safety. 
South Africa's Trade and Industry Department signed 93 economic and trade cooperation agreements with Chinese entrepreneurs. The deal will help create jobs for young people, deepen South Africa's industrial footprint and grow the country's gross domestic product. The deals are worth in excess of $2 billion. The Beijing Auto Industrial Corporation is building the country's first new light-to-vehicle manufacturing plant in more than 45 years in Kuga in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. The United States is due to further tighten its economic sanctions on Iran as the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in the Gulf to discuss the crisis with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Russia says it will counter any new sanctions. The BBC's Sebastian Asher reports. The U.S. says the new sanctions it's due to impose on Iran will be significant. The aim is to maintain what Washington has described as maximum pressure on Tehran, despite President Trump's last-minute decision not to launch missile strikes last week. The Iranians have now denied that the substitute action ordered by Mr. Trump, a cyber attack on Iranian weapon systems, actually took place. Mike Pompeo is likely to hear further calls for the strongest possible action against Iran from the Saudis and Emiratis. The U.S. dollar is trading at 357.22 Nigeria Naira, 10.52 Botswana Pula at 100.77 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.86 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.82 Brazilian Hale, 63.01 Russian Ruble, 69.43 Indian Rupee, 6.86 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.29 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,403 and platinum at $812 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $65.42 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Cameroon faced an inquiry and a possible disciplinary action from football authorities after a series of incidents in their 3-0 defeat by England in the last 16 of the Women's World Cup on Sunday night. Now, Cameroon players furiously protested refereeing decisions and twice delayed the game while appearing to consider leaving the contest. The ill-tempered match also included an incident where Cameroon defender Augustine Onoge spat on the arm of England forward Tony Duggan. Now FIFA's disciplinary body is likely to look as part of its routine reviews of matches at some of the incidents while Aisha Janssen who is the chair of the Women's Football Committee for the African Football Confederation that is CAF said her body will be opening an inquiry. 
Meanwhile, Nigeria's women's national football team are set to return home later today after crushing out of the FIFA Women's World Cup on Saturday night. The African champions went down 3-0 to Germany in the round of 16 clash. The loss also meant that Nigeria have failed to win a knockout game in all of the eight tournaments they have participated in. Now, Coach Thomas Deneby reflects on his team's performance. I'm proud of seeing the improvement of the team, that we are doing better and better proud that we went to the knockout stage. I'm not happy for going out in the round of 16, but I'm happy that we were the first team since 99 that been in the knockout stage. But we still have a lot to do and we have to keep on working on a daily basis. That's the only way you can develop a team and that is absolutely crucial that we have uh, time together. On to AFCON news, Uganda became the first surprise package of the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament on Saturday. A 2-0 win over the DR Congo uh, propelled them to the top of Group A ahead of hosts Egypt on goal difference. Fans back home have been reacting to the team's first win at the CIS tournament. This is very exciting for us as Ugandans uh, to start the campaign on a very high note. Uh, that is really good for us and we hope we can uh, you know play like that for the next two games i am sure even egypt we can uh, go toe to toe with them the whole team is playing as a unit and i have hopes that we shall smash each and every team that will come across cranes uh, our strikers are very okay so i believe we are going to to make it to up to the finals maybe uh, the coach has tried very much to endure that people, the players, have to be communicative. Communication in football is very good. But I thank Uganda Cranes for what it has done for Uganda. And did you, it has boosted Uganda to the highest. Meanwhile, Senegal began the Africa Cup of Nations campaign with a routine victory over Group C rivals Tanzania and Cairo, Egypt on Sunday evening. Tanzania are making a first appearance in 39 years following their debut back in 1980. Our Tanzanian-based correspondent Fortunate Kasomfi spoke to a number of supporters back home after the team's defeat. They are not all that bad even if it's the first time after 39 years. I've seen a little bit, there's a little bit of lack in the defence. So if our coach can work, work on the defense, then I'm sure we can, we can be okay. Because even the first goal, the way it came in, I, I was not, not happy with the defense people. But the goalkeeper is a good, is a good goalkeeper. He saved us a number of times. Uh, Tefa stars are good. Uh, not, really, uh, not really bad. Are uh, good. Are uh, good. Are very much good. Uh, it's just a little mistakes. Uh, you know, in the game there is some mistake. Without mistakes, there is no win. Uh, you know. Meanwhile, Kenya's national football team Harambe Stars must beat their neighbours Tanzania to have any realistic chance of qualifying for the second round of the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Egypt. Kenya got their campaign off to defeat after going down 2-0 to Algeria in the opening fixture on Sunday night. Now Channel Africa's Francis Motegi reports. This Sebastian Minier-led outfit faces a daunting task, albeit not impossible. Coach Minier will have to go into the second match with a more offensive mission if goals are to come through. The fans here at home are not giving up yet. Kenya play Taifa Stars of Tanzania in their second Group C match. The fellow East Africans, Tanzanians, did not have a positive result either with their opener falling by a similar margin of 2-0 to Senegal. For the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Lebo Muswewo, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening.